0: Welcome to Hungry for Words, a podcast in which I have lunch with a food writer and you get to listen in. I'm your host, Kathleen Flynn. Today I'll be talking to Joanne Ware, a James Beard award-winning cookbook author, international cooking teacher, and a fourth-generation professional chef. She started her culinary career at Chez Panin cooking with Alice Waters and later studied with Melon Common in France. She's also known for culinary journeys, which are cooking class programs that she leads in countries throughout the world. Her third PBS series, Plates and Places with Joanne Ware, is set to debut in January 2018 on stations throughout the country. I have been a longtime fan of Joanne's, so I am thrilled that she's gonna be joining me in my kitchen to talk about her latest book, her 17th, titled Kitchen Gypsy, Recipes and Stories from a Lifelong Love Affair with Food. This episode of Hungry for Words is sponsored by Wolf, encouraging you to reclaim your kitchen, starting with one home-cooked family meal per week. Visit reclaimthekitchen.com for tips, techniques, and recipes from Wolf Cooking Tools. And by our media partner, foodista.com. Join a passionate community of food lovers at foodista.com. And by our partner, BookLarder, Seattle's community cookbook bookstore. Learn more at booklarder.com. I'm reading through Joanne's Kitchen Gypsy and, you know, I think one of the things I really like about this book and I really find attractive in cookbooks in general is when they're more than just a cookbook, that you really feel like it's sort of memory with recipes, you know, and it's a kind of cookbook that when I ever sit down to write an actual cookbook that I would love to write. Um, She has pictures of herself, you know, with long hair and looking really cool in her 20s and pictures of herself as a kid and her family. And it just, it's very endearing. And I think one of the things I really, I've always liked about Joanne is that, you know, she talked about starting to cook when she was very young. And early in the book, she even talks about how she was nine years old when she first decided to make cookies by herself. So I'm flipping through it and you really get a sense of like how She evolved because it starts with the kinds of things that kids, little kids would make, right? Like cookies and lemon bars and stuff like that. And to stuff that was popular in like the 70s, like guacamole and, you know, chicken with rice and stuff like that. You know, the name Kitchen Gypsy is, is so applicable because she moves around a lot. And you can see how what she's eating changed based on where she moved and also how you know, just sort of the taste of the chines changed. I mean, what she's cooking in the 70s is very different than what she's cooking in the 90s. And I ended up settling on this one recipe because it one, it has a beautiful photo with it, and two, it really struck me because I eat a lot of fish. And it's a uh, in this dish, she did a halibut with this green salsa verde that has pistachios. And I'm super into pistachios right now. So it looks really fresh and it looks very healthy. It has zucchini that has been sliced in and then kind of woven onto these skewers. And I just thought that just sounded great. And it sounded like something that I would just make regularly. So, and I love fish. Okay, and I have just uh, finished assembling my my skewers with my woven uh, strips of zucchini now i'm getting ready to actually sear this and then that way we will be ready when joanne gets here it's it's kind of really actually a cool thing so it's got this salsa verde that you make with pistachio and mint and a whole bunch of other fresh herbs and it and lemon and it's got a really nice kind of fresh taste to it her recipe called for halibut. Um, my market didn't have any good-looking halibut, so but they had some ahi and some salmon on sale, so I got that instead. So I ended up not having bamboo skewers that would work, uh, so I had to resort to a problem-solving moment and in a MacGyver, minute I decided to use chopsticks because we have a bunch of those really kind of inexpensive chopsticks you know that you get from Chinese places and stuff anyway so I'm, I'm searing up my skewers they're looking delicious they also have these really cool zucchini ribbons which I think gives it a really nice kind of look and I'm pretty excited I'm I'm kind of nervous I'll be honest cooking for Joanne because she's you know worked at Chez Panisse She Worked with all these famous chefs, and and, um, but I I think she's going to like it, so we're going to find out. Well, welcome to my kitchen. Thank you. It's so
1: great to be here.
0: I know, and it's so rainy
1: outside. (laughs) Well, that's the perfect (laughs) thing to do, right? Be inside. Yeah. Be inside and
0: cook. In a warm kitchen. Exactly. Yeah. I love your new book. Um, So tell me, how did this come about? I know that there's a story early in the book that you're talking to the wonderful Margot true at sunset magazine and and how what were you there to talk to them about and how did that all happen well you know
1: it's interesting i had said you have i'd written 17 cookbooks and i thought you know i just didn't want to write another recipe book i think people have enough of my recipes and i just it didn't excite me anymore and so um, Margot, I saw Margot in in New York at the Beard Awards, and she said, "Why don't you come in? We'd love to talk to you about a book." And I'd just been thinking about this, like, "Oh, you know, I've written enough," and um, so I said, "Okay, I'll come," and I'd love to talk to you because I love Margot. So I went to the Sunset offices and sat in the corporate office with Margot and also. Uh, Peggy Northrop, who is the editor-in-chief. And uh, they said, you know, we we'll want to work on another book. We want to work on something about Cali- the California food movement. And we thought of you first, and we'd love to work with you on it. And they said, what does it really mean to you? And honestly, I sat there just like that. Silence. I just didn't have much to say. And once I started talking, I was kind of like, blah, 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 blah. I didn't I just didn't know. I mean, I definitely was there at the height of the California food movement working at Chez Panisse, but I just didn't know exactly what I want, would want to write about. And they said, well, you know, if that's not it, we'd love to work on a book with you. What would you like to write? And so when I started telling my story and I just went on and on about first starting, you know, I'm a fourth generation professional cook and talking about my grandfather's farm and uh, how wonderful that was and also talking about my mother's food and their tomato sandwich and making these uh, oatmeal cookies that I made such a mistake with when I was eight years old. I just I couldn't stop talking. I just had all these things and I, I said to them, you know, Every single thing I've done in my life has gotten me to exactly where I sit at this very moment, just like sitting here with you, Kathleen. And I thought, that's really what interests me, is um, just writing about stories and stories that bring recipes alive.
0: And I think the interesting thing about your story, too, is, you know, you kind of start out with this background through grandparents. My grandparents also had a farm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's sort of this very Americana kind of way to start life. But then you have a series of, you know, moments that really change where you go next. And I, I think that that's something that when people are reflecting their life, they don't necessarily identify those moments. But you really did a good job of that, I thought.
1: Oh, the, the pivotal moments. Exactly. Well, you know, it was true that I, you know, I got so much encouragement from my mother. Um, Not that I necessarily was in the kitchen cooking with her, but, you know, I learned the love of food through my family. But then it's true that, you know, it's funny, I was listening to NPR. It was years ago. Speaking of those pivotal moments, I was, had just finished college and I was listening to NPR and it was a story about this woman who was in California And she had opened this restaurant that every single thing was fresh. And that made my ears perk up because my family, I mean, both sides had farms and everything we had was seasonal. And um, so I really thought about, I mean, I really listened and I was so caught up with that story and this woman and just how passionate she was. And she loved food from the Mediterranean. And I had had this friend that was Lebanese and I loved, I met her my first day of college And she was my best friend. And so I learned about Mediterranean food from her. And I just, it it really got me excited. And I kept listening. And it was, I just said, you know, I think I really want to go to that restaurant. Now, think I was in Boston. That's so far away. And what I did was I booked a flight. And it was Alice Waters. She had just opened Chez Panisse, and I just made this beeline. I really wanted to go there. And it was everything that I could have ever dreamed about. It was so extraordinary. So that was a really strong, pivotal moment for me. So talk about that
0: first lunch
1: at Chez Panisse. you know, I can still remember walking up the stairs, and there was this beautiful bouquet of flowers at the top of the stairs. I mean, just beautiful. And, uh, you know, it's still there, which is interesting. And I really, the thing is, I've never really left Chez Panisse. It's always still there in my mind. But I walked up the stairs and I was waiting to be seated. And um, I just, it was everything. I stood and I looked at the bartenders and they were dressed in these clothes. I loved what they were wearing. And I, you know, they looked really French. They had these white shirts and these long black aprons almost to the floor and they looked so French. And 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 then we were seated and and. I just, I loved it. I loved it immediately. I loved the smells. I couldn't believe what the smells were like. And, you know, you could smell the pizza and just the herbs, and it was just great. But anyway, I looked at the menu, I was and I looked at it, and I was like, hmm, I know what raw oysters are. I learned to eat those when I was five years old with my father, and, and I didn't know what was that sauce called, M-I-G-N-O-N-E-T-T-E, and I was like, what is mignonette? And and I'm sure that's what I said. And she was like, oh, it's mignonette and it's so delicious. It's white wine vinegar and a little bit of dry white wine and some black pepper and shallots. If you put it on the oysters, I was like, we'll have them. We'll have a half dozen oysters. And they were the most delicious ice cold oysters. And then we also had the goat cheese salad with flowers on it. I had never seen flowers on a salad. That was just great. And then the next thing was a pizza with a parsley salad on the top. And I just, I'd always love pizza. Like I'm salivating right now talking about pizza. But I love, I was so excited about the pizza. So we ordered the pizza. I was with my sister, Nancy. And then the dessert. It was interesting because when we walked in, The desserts were all right there on the counter, and I thought, "Wow, that's so great! It looks like my mother's counter because my mother was a a professional cook, and she always um, she always had desserts on the counter that she kind of force fed us." And so I remembered, and we got this um, rhubarb rhubarb crostata, which was delicious—a galette, I think they called it. But it was just the most wonderful lunch. It was just so memorable, and it changed my life. I remember the last thing I said to them when we were leaving. She said, "Can I help you with anything else?" And I said, "Can I have a job here?" And uh, I went back to Boston and um, said, at that point, I actually walked out the door of the restaurant and thought, you know what? I really want to work. I want to go into food. I really do. I want to follow my mother's, my grandfather's, and my great-grandmother's footsteps. And all from lunch? All over a lunch. My grandfather was, he had this beautiful dairy farm in New England, in the Berkshires, in the foothills of the Berkshires, this little town called Cummington. It was... And my grandfather owned the Bryant Farm. And it was just this beautiful, beautiful place. It was 450 acres. And my mother grew up and it was a dairy farm, a commercial dairy farm. And my mother grew up in the middle of it in this 28-room Victorian house. It was just beautiful, idyllic place. And I honestly, to talk about it, I really truly get emotional because it was really, it was really the time that I knew food was really important with my family and and just the reverence. It was interesting. One time I was on the radio years and years ago, I was on the radio um, when I first started um, working and, and uh, teaching and, you know, being involved with food. And, and I wrote my first book and I went, was on tour. And I, I really haven't recalled this till you just asked me, but I was um, on the radio and she said, tell me about your first food memory. And I just wait, I had just been to Greece and um, I, I, celebrated greek easter and i was talking about how everything and you know how everything on the table is you know it is you know they've either made it or they've grown it or they, you know they cooked it in their wood-fired oven or whatever and i t- was telling the story about greek easter spit roasting a lamb and then she said well what about your first food memory and i told about my grandfather's chicken salad sandwiches which he would have made the rolls and he tossed the flour and he said oh you incorporate air and then he also uh, butchered the chicken and he made homemade mayonnaise he made this delicious chicken salad to go in the chicken salad sandwiches and he served us homemade potato chips and then for dessert he always made maple walnut ice cream he did hand churned maple walnut ice cream and above us were maple trees he even made the maple syrup so he's telling that story and the person who was interviewing me said you know Why do you regard the trip, the time in Greece much more than your grandfather? Because he wasn't that different than what they're doing. And it was the first time I really thought about that, that, you know, the
0: food that my grandfather made was pretty extraordinary and just the food I grew up with. But because you grew up with it, maybe you just thought, oh, well, everybody ate like that. Yeah.
1: Except when I went to other kids' houses. I remember our neighbors going to their house, and they had spaghetti with ketchup on it. (laughs) When, oh, my, my mother, we only... Like, for me, after a while, the word homemade made me crazy. I just... Wanted so much to just like, I would have, seriously, I would have killed a kid for a Chips Ahoy cookie. I had to take homemade cookies to school, homemade chocolate chip cookies. I wanted so much to have a Chips Ahoy cookie. But now, I mean, seriously, at least I know now. I know better. But, you know, I was the kid that opened up the refrigerator and I'd say, Mom, we don't have any food in here. It's just ingredients. There's no food. It's funny, my stepdaughter said the same thing to me. She goes, there's no food in your refrigerator, just ingredients. Now I think it's a compliment.
0: Isn't that funny? When I was a kid, my parents made, you know, we had a farm and we had all these chickens and all the stuff and whatever, and they made homemade bread. And and my brothers and sisters always complained because they always had to take their lunches to school, so they never had the hot lunch. So in a, during that era, there was a brown bag ghetto, like sort of in the... Lunchrooms. I was like all the poor kids who brought their lunches and they'd have these really thick sliced, like super awkward sandwiches and tomato sandwiches when oh. the things they would get too, like, you know, when they were in season and stuff. And all I wanted when I was a kid, I just wanted Wonder Bread. Oh. I wanted Wonder Bread so bad. And I actually bought some with my allowance. Wow. <laughs> and I, I got it and I thought it would taste like candy. And actually, I realized it tasted like nothing.
1: Oh, yeah. And your mom's bread was so much better. Mm -hmm. See, we had this similar kind of experience. Isn't that funny? Yeah. You know, it, it was hard for me. Like, I really seriously wanted that other food. And it is true. You taste it. And then on when my parents would go out on Saturday night, they would, she go. My mom always bought me a box of Apian Way pizza. I'm dying to know if they still make Apian Way pizza. I remember but that. In the box. And they had a little can of um, Parmesan cheese. And it had, you know, like the can of sauce. And you tell, they cracked the little tube and the dough came out of it. And I'd press it into the pan. I thought that was so great. Oh, I thought it was cooking.
0: That's funny. My parents, um, it's kind of a long story, but they ended up owning a pizza place in San Francisco. It was probably like 1958 or 59. Right. But it was still pizza and Italian food was still ethnic. Yeah. Which is hard to imagine.
1: No, it's true. And, you know, it's interesting. I own a restaurant with Larry Mendel, and he's a well-known restaurateur. He's the first person to have a pizza oven in California, even before Alice or Wolfgang. But um, one thing that, that he always said was that when he first opened Italian restaurants, people thought it was inexpensive food. You shouldn't pay very much for it. You know, it's funny because I now own a re- Mexican restaurant, and it's kind of the same perception. You know, it's just changing now. But, yeah, perception of food is funny. It's yeah, different.
0: that's interesting. So... You have your fantastic lunch at Chez Pony, and you go back to Boston. Mm-hmm. And what happened next?
1: Well, I ended up. I was t- I was teaching. I was teaching in um, fine arts in high school, and and then I just did that for a little while. And I said, "Oh, I can't do. It. I couldn't do it anymore." I just said, "I really want to go do something with food." So I said, "You know what was going on? You know, in California seemed pretty exciting, and I fell in love with someone. So I he was from California, so I moved to California." How perfect! And I worked there for how oh, I got this great job. I forgot to write about this in the book. It's kind of funny, but I got this job because I wasn't—I didn't want to teach anymore. At, you know, I didn't want to teach art in high school, so I got a job as a chef at a private tennis, tennis club. I have to say. If I was to eat that food now, it would be very interesting. I was making, you know, like hot dogs and hamburgers, and I had a special sandwich and a special soup every day. But I just did it on the weekend, and it was really interesting because... I started cooking, and then I said, "Wait a minute! I have to go study. I really have to study." And I had already, when I was living in Boston, I'd already studied with Madeline Kamen, so um, non-professionally. And I would I study with her every night, every Thursday night for a a year. And so um, I decided that I wanted to go and study with Madeline. So I applied to study with Madeline, and um, and she said, "Sorry." There are no openings. There are absolutely no openings. And she said, it's, there's a three-year waiting list. And I said, oh, Madeline, please, you've got to. I've got to. I'm getting old. I'm 30. I'm almost 30. Anyway, so she recalled me one day after, a little while later, was, hello, this is Madeline, because she's so French. And she said, I made a place for you in the school. And so she, we did. We, She actually made a place for me in the school, and I uh, studied with her for a year in France and back east, and which was extraordinary. Tough, 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 but great. It's great.
0: Yeah, in your book, you talk about some of the women there who chose not to, say, study quite as hard or as diligently as you did, and they were going to lead a revolt that they oh, left.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> that was halfway through the school school year. Um, because it, but it was really hard and there were eight of us and we were all, you know, pretty much adults and, you know, t- we all lived together in the same house. And, you know, there were some people that were older than me, not, uh, maybe one, one person younger. Um, and I was on the younger side. I mean, it was like these people, you know, it was tough. The only phone in the house, cause we all had a rented house and the only phone in the house was out in the kitchen on the wall. And my room was the only room downstairs next to the phone. So imagine phone calls, how many came in all night, every hour. And I remember sleeping with earplugs most nights. And also Madeline was intense. Luckily she liked me, but she was really, really difficult. And 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 she's just a taskmaster and i really respected it and for me it was an expensive thing to do and i just buckled down i just i was really i really studied and i worked really hard that year but i did have a calendar on my wall and every single day i made an x through that day when that day was over, because I could not wait till the course was finished. And um, so this was back east. Um, and then we went to France with Madeline and taught with Madeline, which was great. But the day before we left, they quit. Half the students quit. And, you know, these were people that, you know, they had trust funds and they just weren't as serious. You know, I really cared about food and had real regard for Madeline. I knew who she was. I knew she was difficult, but I was ready for
0: that challenge. I think that that's the interesting thing about culinary training. Like when I went to Le Cordon Bleu, I thought, oh, my God, the chefs are going to be so impressed by me because I throw such great dinner parties. (laughs) And then I got there and I didn't know how to hold a knife, you know, and just, you know, I got yelled at in French and my French wasn't that great. I didn't even know what I was getting yelled at for sometimes. and. You know, and just over seemingly very small things. Like I thought, well, what doesn't matter if I didn't, you know, get like the parsley all the way off the stem or, you know, were small things. But I look back now and I'm grateful for it. Right. But a lot of people didn't finish. I think a lot of people
1: in the class with Madeline were just, they wanted to throw good dinner parties. You know, I know it was tough, but I was really serious and I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to. So when I finished... Studying with Madeline, I can't, went back to California, and I w- interviewed. Um, I put together a resume and went to Chez Panisse, and uh, it was great. I was late for my interview with Alice, and I went running in with my resume in hand, and I, she never even asked me to see the resume. She really was so much more interested in my grandparents, She because both sides having these wonderful farms and me being around food, and that's really what she was interested. What did I cook for my friends and my family? What did my I eat growing up? What was my favorite thing to cook? And those were the things, and she just loved the part of my about my grandfather told her about you know the maple trees and the you know maple syrup, and she just loved it, you know everything and it was funny i I had taken so much for granted what my grandfather um did I just Alice was using terms like organic and seasonal and you know sustainable. My grandfather was living those principles without without heirloom, without even talking about them so. It, it was really shapeness was a perfect place for me even though i studied with madeline and my food was so formal when i got out i was you know i, I was doing these essences and food that took all day to do and um you know and, and not that i don't do that i still you know i still love to cook and i but i would much rather put my heart into like you know making ravioli than spending all day making an essence so you know madeline's food was formal
0: describe when you're in france and the places you're eating and like you have this big full course like big five course lunch and then go out to another restaurant and butter and cream and cheese and honestly i'll never forget i got to the
1: point where i couldn't even button this one skirt i had because my waist had gotten so big but yeah it was just like butter and cream and rich food and i just felt kind of queasy I felt it was just heavy for me. I've always been a person who likes lighter food. I love vegetables. I love olive oil. I'm just, you know, I my new series, you know, my TV show that's called Joanne Weir Gets Fresh is really, it's all about fresh food and, you know,
0: keeping it simple. It's just my style of food. So I think this would be a great time to taste the food that I made from your book. And I just remembered something, that I have a bottle of wine. Oh. <laughs> so, so the wine I have is, since we have salmon. Yes. And is a... Pinot Noir from Oregon. So this oh. is a King Estate. I've taught there.
1: Oh, a King really? Estate,
0: yes. It's a beautiful Yeah, it's
1: beautiful. Oh, I think Willamette Valley is beautiful. Okay. There we go. Oh. Oh, I love that sound. Don't you? I do. Right? <laughs>
0: okay. There we go. Slightly chilled. Oh, that's oh, yeah. so great. Ah. Thanks, Kathleen. Sure. So I'll tell you what I made and why I made it. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Thank go. you so much. Sure. Mm, it's delicious. Mm. Mm. It's not too cold either. It's excellent. I was worried about that, no, it's great. Mm. It's excellent. Great. Oh gosh, I yeah. passed wow. test number one. That's oh awesome.
1: please. <laughs> oh,
0: that's wonderful. So I it'll be
1: delicious with the salmon. salmon because of that little bit of fattiness with the salmon really works with a pinot. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sometimes people don't want to put a red with fish, but it really works, you know. But mm-hmm. I always say, too, it depends upon the sauce, what you're having for the sauce.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, when one of the reasons I picked this was, um, well, I live in Seattle. So I saw that I had halibut in the original version of this dish. But I went to my store and they didn't have... <laughs> great halibut so but they did have some king salmon king salmon is right. one of the best things about mm-hmm. living in seattle yeah. and so so i did that instead and i loved all the fresh herbs mm-hmm. and most of them i had on my back oh, porch nice. so i went out and so i was able to you know put it all together yeah. but it's nice and fresh mm-hmm. and Just to describe the recipe, so this is the halibut and squash ribbon skewers with pistachio mint salsa verde. Yeah,
1: so we'll try it. I love the idea that you did it with salmon because I love salmon. It's my favorite
0: fish. But what I love is this salsa verde. I loved it. I liked making it with the pistachios. Mm -hmm. It really gave it kind of a nice... Mm. This is so good,
1: Kathleen. Oh, Mm, thank you. You did such justice to my food. Oh, good. And it looks so beautiful. I love the photo in the book. I, hmm. Tom Story, the photographer, I think did such an exquisite job. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful book. Thank you. So where did this recipe come from? What's hmm. the origin of it? Well, the salsa verde is really inspired from uh, Chez Panisse. It's definitely Chez Panisse. I love doing things on skewers, and I thought this would just be a great combination. And I will find any way to eat salsa verde. I eat it on chicken. I eat it on fish. When I was married to Joe, my husband, I even had salsa verde with lamb at my wedding. So just to let you know, I love salsa verde. So Mm. you picked probably one of my favorite dishes. Perfect. Wow. Mm. That is the perfect pairing. So yes, I really love it. That's really great. Oh, honestly, it's a beautiful pairing. Thank wow. you. I can't really stop eating this because you did such a good job. Thank you. Yeah. You went to Chez and
0: You worked there and worked with David Levitz.
1: I worked with David. David's still a really good friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he, yes, he just wrote about my book a few times. He really loves the book. He's always been a huge supporter, which is really nice. But I also worked with David Tanis. I worked, David's still a really close friend. I worked with Lindsay Shear, who wrote the dessert book, Deborah Madison, Paul Bertoli. I mean, I just worked with some unbelievable people. And I'm sure there's other people I'm forgetting on the list. It was just such a great experience. Just It was really, I called it the Harvard of restaurants because everybody was so talented. And to work there, you really had to have the same philosophy or you have to. So it made for a very, very strong team. And also everybody gets along so well. But, you know, it's funny when Alice wrote the foreword to my book, which Alice doesn't write a lot of forewords to books. In the foreword, what she said was she said that one thing about me, that what a lot of people leave when they leave Chez Panisse, they never really leave and they stay in their La Famille Panisse. And that means the family of Panisse. And that's what we all are. You know, you just... It really got under my skin and, and and in a good way. And I will never, ever, ever I'll never leave the place. I, I go back sometimes in I work at the restaurant and I'm still very close and I, if I haven't eaten there for a little while, a couple months, I have to go back. I just crave it. I just need to be there. So anyway, I was there for five years. And then you left to teach. I left to teach. Um I did because I went, I really love teaching and I realized that I didn't want to stay in the restaurant forever. Um, Actually, the very, and I didn't write this either in the book, but one of the things that I did was I was ready to leave and I said, talk to Alice and I said, do I need to do something else? And I said, I want to leave um, the restaurant, but I don't want to leave Chez Panisse. Do you know what I mean? And she said, yes. Um, she said, why don't you come over to my house? We'll drink a glass of wine and we'll talk what we should, do, what you should do next. So I went over to her house. We had this great glass of rosé and I sat and, you know, talked to Alice. She had another little cafe then called Cafe Fanny. And she said, I can't go every day to taste. You have an amazing palate. Everybody says it. Why don't you go taste for me? So for a whole year, I tasted for Alice. And that was an interesting job. Telling cooks like, oh, you need another quarter of a tablespoon of sugar in that those muffins or whatever, or the pizza or whatever. But it was really a great job. It was great. And I did that for a year. And then I at that same time, I started teaching too. And I started very small. I was teaching just in San Francisco at Taunt Marie's. And then someone saw me teach um, at Taunt Marie's, a woman from uh, Gwenda Robb from Australia. And she said, you need to come to teach in Australia. If I could set up some classes, would you do it? And I acted very cool. Oh, yeah, that sounds great. But I was like jumping up and ins- down inside. I really wanted to do it. And so um, she got in touch with me and said, I just set up 28 classes for you. And so I went and I wow, just... oh 28. That's a lot. 28 classes over a one-month period of time. I would teach in Sydney... Monday morning, Monday night, Tuesday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Wednesday night, I'd fly the next day and I'd teach the next night. I had like back-to-back classes and I loved Australia. The food and the food scene was so exciting. And I just met so many people from Maggie Beer and Stephanie Alexander, all the top people. And I did that for years. I probably went at least 20 times to Australia and New Zealand. Lorraine Jacobs, who I'm sure you know. That's right. She mm-hmm. brought me to New Zealand. And and so I did the same in New Zealand. And at this point, I've taught all over the world. Really, I've taught in Asia. I've taught in South America, in Mexico, in England. I've taught everywhere. And then now I do these, you know, I've taught in uh, Italy, France, Spain, Morocco, and Greece. So I've taught a lot.
0: So what is it about teaching that, you know, you find so satisfying that you have dedicated so much of your life to? Yeah.
1: I really love getting people excited about food. And I really want to keep people in the kitchen. And I think for me, that's probably, I guess, if you want to say legacy, I don't know. I just hope that I've done that. Uh, That's why my TV show also, on my TV show, it's really important to me that that I'm teaching people how to cook. So I always have a student on the show with me. And I've had so many people come up to me and say, you know, I never cooked before, you i never cooked i never couldn't cook i you know i didn't i watch your show and i've learned how to do this 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 and this and you know ribbon eggs and whip egg whites and or whatever and i just think that is
0: the thing i really love that i've been able to get people excited about food i love teaching people to cook i love watching people say learn how to use a knife Mm -hmm. or learn to make vinaigrette and right. it's just like their eyes get really wide and you know mm-hmm. and people get really excited I love and that it's too. it's something that i think that's really special mm-hmm. mm. yeah my second book was um a project that i did trying to understand what holds people back from cooking at home and when i interviewed all these these home cooks a lot of them were just it's just they didn't have confidence <gasps> Wait a minute, that's so interesting. Did you know that's the same thing that happened to
1: me? No. That Okay, so I'd written so many books, and I said to people, what do you think I should write next? And a few people came to me and said the same thing. Well, you know, I really don't have confidence. So that's why I called my book and my TV show, Joanne Wears Cooking Confidence, because I really think if we can instill confidence in people, I think if you learn to make egg, whip egg whites, you know, you can suddenly make a souffle. And, you know, you get one recipe down, and then you can ma- you'll can, you have the confidence to do something else. And I think that's really important. It's funny you say exactly the same thing.
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely true. And I, I think that there is this kind of inherent message that, you know, marketers, particularly big food you know, products, have been trying to tell people for years, like, cooking isn't worth your time, cooking's too difficult, you know, here, here's this box. And, and I think that's hard to overcome, you know, say, decades of that.
1: I feel so lucky that I've been able to be on PBS. Um, you know, nationally I've been so lucky and I think that part of that, you know, for me it was always Jacques and Julia who were the people that really inspired me and they were the ones that I really learned something from and I think it's great that there are people like you and me that
0: do want to continue to teach people to cook. Yeah, I have, I definitely go by the motto sort of what would Julia do. Right.
1: Yeah. yeah you know you do that that's interesting and i do what what would alice do that's fun. Oh, really i <laughs> do what would alice do always mine is always alice it's always like would alice do that no i'm not doing it no yeah i've always used alice well i have to run another sip of that fabulous wine
0: oh yeah yeah let's do it cheers cheers to confidence in the kitchen absolutely yeah. I love that story in your book about when you found the fly in your wine. You had to tell that story. Okay.
1: So I was twenty-four years old. I was teaching in Boston and I, you know, I'd had wine. I, I had friend, a lot of friends from Europe that were living in Boston, you know, teaching at MIT and teaching at Harvard and stuff. And they were from Europe, from France and from Belgium. And we'd always have these dinners together. And so I knew a touch about wine. But anyway, I moved into this new apartment with a friend of mine, Charlotte. And the person that was moving out gave us a bottle of Mouton Cadet wine. And... It took us two, just to let you know how much wine I drank, it took us two nights to drink the wine. So we weren't big drinkers, but anyway, we had just moved in. We couldn't even find the corkscrew. My glasses were the size of, you know, they were as thick as Coke bottles. It was just, I really wasn't the savvy wine drinker, but anyway, but I liked wine. So anyway, we opened the bottle. It took us two nights. The second night I had my glass like this and we got to the bottom of the glass and I looked in my glass and I said, Yuck. Inside the glass was a fly clinging to the inside of the glass. And I went, oh, my God, I took it out. And I went, that's awful. I'm sending it back to where it came from. And I wrapped it in foil. And I sent it back to France to Chateau Mouton, Rothschild. And little did I know that I was sending it to the top winery in the world. Anyway, I got this telex back because there was no such thing as emails or faxes. And I got it back saying, if you ever happen to be in France, we'd love you to be our special guest for lunch. Well, I just so happened to be going to France that summer. And so I went with Charlotte, my friend Charlotte. We made reservations. We were so excited. And we each had on our Diane von Furstenberg wraparound dresses. I had on the blue version. She had the green with these little espadrilles that matched. These were our dress-up outfits for the trip. And we walked across those beautiful white pebbles at um, Chateau Mouton. We were met by these two exporting agents, Xavier Desaguerre. I love saying his name, Xavier Desaguerre, and Pierre, but I didn't know Pierre's last name because he wasn't quite as handsome, but he was really nice. So, anyway, we had this lunch that started with the most incredible toasts that were, it felt like they were drenched in butter. And they had these duck livers on the top. And we started drinking wine. We started with Chateau Mouton in 1966, then 1944, and then 1921. And honestly, it was just an amazing day. And then we had this wonderful duck breast for the main course. And then for dessert, they brought out this strawberry tart. They said, We're going to have some dessert wine now. Well, I'd been doing reading before I left because I didn't want to look silly there. So I studied the only two books I can find World of Wines by Hugh Johnson and Alexis Lachine wrote this book. And I read those two books cover to cover. So I sort of knew what was going on. And I had thought, Wow, I really want to try some Chateau de Cam while I'm there. Well, luckily, they brought out Chateau de Chem, but we started with 1922. The second was 1908, and we finished with Chateau de Chem from 1892. Honestly, by then, I was fluent in French. I was, I'm sure I was, whatever the saying is. What is it? To the wind? Oh, four sheets. Four sheets to To the the wind. wind. We both, we (laughs) all were. (laughs) You're <laughs> having so much fun. My favorite line of the entire day was when Xavier said, wow, this is so fun. I mean, think about it. He was all of 30. He was much older. I was, we were 24 and actually Charlotte had already turned 25 and he said, oh, we thought you're going to be so much older. We thought you're going to be at least 40 years old. And so I just thought that was so funny. Now I laugh about it. But anyway, we got into our little rented mini car and we drove away, windows down, singing old Beatles songs all the way to Barrett's. It was really an amazing day. Probably shouldn't have been driving, but nobody talked about that then.
0: <laughs> what year was that?
1: Oh, it was the late 70s, 80s, 70s. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, God. It was incredible. It really it was such. It changed my life. From then, if had I not done food, I would have studied winemaking. I really would have been, I would have, because I'm, I'm also as interested in wine as I am food, and or close. Food's pretty important for me, and um, so yeah, it was really great. It really changed a lot of things. That's why I always say, every single thing I've done in my life has gotten me to exactly where I sit just like you. And it's just, you know, you look at these experiences and how rich they are and how they've made you into who you are. And this book was very cathartic for me. I I didn't know I had it in me to write something so personal, but I also didn't know that so many things would come out in that book. You know, just, it made me really think about me and my life and who I am. It was truly a pure passion project. And I worked on it two years solidly. It was just a great project. It was funny because Tom Douglas said to me, wait a minute. You wrote your memoir. What are you going to write now? I mean, you're not even old enough to write a memoir. I said, okay, well, then don't call it a memoir. Just call it some stories about food. That's funny. I've written three memoirs. <laughs> 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 so
0: there you go. Right? See? And
1: but. you're still writing them. Okay. And I'm still this, writing them. I so maybe still I still have some right more now. stories in me.
0: I bet you do. <laughs> so tell me about your new recipe. Rest- it's not that new now.
1: It's three years old. Copita. Yeah. So I, my 17th book, the book before this, was a book called Tequila, a Guide to Flights, Types, Cocktails, and Bites. It's a mouthful to say, but tequila is easy to It's a great say. book, though,
0: I have Thank it. you, yeah. thank
1: you. What happened was, I I really like tequila, but I don't mean I'm like a swilling woman who just drinks black shots of tequila. But I like, I think it's a really interesting spirit. It's really versatile. There's a lot of different kinds, a little different applications. I just really like it. So I went to the launch of a new tequila called uh, Corazon, And it was in this sexy square bottle. And I walked, there was, it was mostly men and only a few women were there. So I walked around and I thought, this is interesting. I mean, really, why is it that tequila is a male spirit? So I walked around and talked to the women and they were like, "We, I love tequila too. It's not just a male spirit. So I said, I really want to start this group. So I started a group called Agave Girls for women who appreciate tequila. I did my first event in San Francisco, And I invited 45 women, and 102 women came to the event. And I realized that women love tequila; they really like it too. And I think it's because women have great palates too. And there's blanco, reposado, añejo, extra añejo. You can have highlands, lowlands. I did it charity events. I actually um, the first was a charity event, and it went towards uh, underprivileged women in Mexico. And then I did several other charity events, and then my agent came to me and she said, you know, my book agent, she says, you know, you really should write a book about tequila. Have you ever thought about that? And I said, mm-hmm. well, no. I said, yeah, I can do it. I mean, I write recipes. She said, just do 40 recipes for cocktails and 40 recipes for food. I said, oh, the food will be easy. Yeah, I can do it. So I started thinking about it. And I was like, this is crazy. I can't write cocktail recipes. Like, You have to be a bartender. I came up with about two or three in the book. And one was this it was a Shirley Temple that added, I added tequila to it and I changed the name to Surly Temple and it was good, but, and I ended up going to all the tequila bartenders around the country that love tequila, and they gave me their favorite cocktail recipes. So it ended up being a fun project, and the book came out, and I was on a boat of a good friend of my husband's and mine. He and his wife have this beautiful 80-foot yacht, and we were invited to go with them on vacation, and we were in Mexico with them. I handed him my book, and I said it was Larry Mendel, and I said, Larry, here, I want you to have this. He goes, oh, tequila, that's my favorite spirit. I said, wow, that's mine too. And he goes, I make the best margarita. I said, no, 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 no. I make the best margarita. He said, oh, come on, let's do a little competition. So I made him mine and he made me his. His was basically, seriously, this big old shaker. He adds tons of tequila, like seriously, three drops of water, three drops of agave nectar and like, or agave ready syrup, I should say. And then he adds three drops of, I swear, Lime juice, freshly squeezed lime juice. And I was like, whoa, this is going to be strong. And he handed me his and I sipped it. And I was like, immediately felt like I was drunk. And I made him, I handed him mine. And he tasted mine. Mine was basically just a mixture of, I had put this recipe in the book because it was so important to the opening of the restaurant. But I made him mine and it was Blanco tequila with lime, freshly squeezed lime juice and agave nectar or agave ready syrup. And he sipped it and he went, Wow. And he's got a great palate. That's the best margarita I've ever had. He said, if I ever found a location, would you open a Mexican restaurant with me? And on my bucket list had always been opening a restaurant. And I had had hundreds of people ask me in my life, why don't you open a restaurant? Why don't you open a restaurant? And I really never said, never thought about, the fact that basically I'd written about the Mediterranean my whole life. I had nothing to do with Mexican food, but he had asked me, he was the right partner and I just had two margaritas and I was like, sure, I'll open a restaurant with you. So honestly I opened a restaurant and I think it must've been crazy and I'm lucky I haven't had a nervous breakdown of come close one week before we opened. We were getting tons of press, the anticipation, because I think if you wait to this point in your life to open a restaurant, people really took note, and um, we got so much press even before we opened in a week before we opened, our chef quit. He just couldn't handle all the pressure. We were just getting a lot of press, and he said he just couldn't do it. And uh, so there I was. I thought I was going to be like in cute little clothes walking around saying, how is everything? And instead... I was up to my elbows in guacamole and ceviche. It took us really about we went through three more chefs, two more chefs, one, two, three. And then we finally got to Gonzalo Rivera, who was with us for two years. And then now we have an amazing new chef, too. Gonzalo was extraordinary. Now we have a new chef we just brought in uh, just recently from Mexico City, who's extraordinary. Extraordinary guy. Just delicious food. So we have a modern Mexican restra- restaurant with only 50 seats, but we do about 500 covers. And that's not even, on a busy day, probably 5.50. And you're thinking, like, how can you do it? We're open from 11.30 to 11. And we have an outdoor seating, which makes 60 seats. But seriously, we're a very, very, very busy restaurant. People love our food. And some people come and don't leave. They just stay and stay. It's a very fun place. It's a great place. So it's really fun. It's been a fun project. But it never closes. We close two days a year. But we're open lunch and dinner seven days. Wow. It's pretty amazing
0: yeah well this has been fantastic and i'm so happy that you came here on this very windy day yeah. i think when people listen to this podcast you're going to be able to hear a burst of wind right. it's so incredibly windy I know. Out it there. Is. but it's all good that oh, okay. just keeps it real yeah right it does. so thanks for coming to my kitchen yes. thank you Kathleen. Thanks. i loved cheers. it thank Yay. you cheers cheers My guest today has been Joanne Ware, the author of 17 books, including her latest, Kitchen Gypsy. You can keep up with her busy life and check out her upcoming culinary journeys at joanneware.com. You can get the recipe that I made today, the tuna skewers with the green salsa verde, and more on her new PBS show at hungryforwords.show. This episode of Hungry for Words is sponsored by Wolf Cooking Tools and their Reclaim the Kitchen initiative. Wolf invites you to reclaim your kitchen by crafting meals that will create your own lasting culinary memories. Visit reclaimthekitchen.com to learn more. Today's show is produced by Abby Circatella. Music is by audionautics.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a review on iTunes, or you can even send us an email at info at That's it for our show. See you in two weeks with a new episode of Hungry for Words. Until then, eat well and be kind. I'm Kathleen Flynn.